the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. There's a bit of graffiti that I saw on a wall one day that made such an interesting statement. You, you've heard this phrase before, God is dead. And Nietzsche, in fact, had made that comment low many years ago. So here is the big piece of the graffiti on the wall that says, God is dead, Nietzsche. And somebody had come along and tagged it in different color spray paint and drew a big circle with a line through it. And then down below wrote the following phrase, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> it makes you, makes you kind of look at the whole debate over the existence of a higher power, a greater being, uh, God himself, and the sense that struggle in the modern age of, of increased knowledge that people have. While I think there is unprecedented levels of interest and hunger in spiritual matters. Um, along with that, though, we see the fastest-growing segment of belief is, in fact, non-belief or atheism. Well, why is that? And how much of this has to do with understanding of God and the level of the way in which Christians live out their lives and, in some ways, perhaps embarrassingly so, turn people off to the gospel? How can we put forward evidence for God in an age of uncertainty? Well, we've invited uh, Dr. Rice Brooks to join us on the program. He is um, pastor of Bethel World Outreach Church. He's the author of a number of best-selling books. His latest, simply entitled, God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. And Pastor Brooks, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Craig. This is, uh, this is an old debate, but it's a debate that seems to be ever-increasing these days, as certainly we see uh, tremendous interest in the occult, in the supernatural, um, in um, alternative so-called religions like Wicca and paganism and so on and so forth. I don't, don't think there's any argument that uh, mankind still doesn't quest for some kind of a uh, satisfaction to a spiritual thirst, but the manner in which we go about doing it, and in particular the direction in which we head in terms of whether or not we ultimately arrive at belief in God or not, that seems to be changing. And as you point out in the book, uh, remarkably and disappointingly so, the fastest segment of those in the arena of belief are those who believe in nothing. Why is that? Craig, uh, that was actually a Newsweek article uh, last Easter that said that they, they noted that, that the fastest growing of, quote, uh, area segment of, quote, belief is, uh, is uh, atheism or skepticism. I think, uh, you know, after, probably after 9-11, there was a rash, uh, shortly after there was a rash of books by men like Richard Dawkins and 
Sam Harris and, and the late Christopher Hitchens, and they they took their beef with religion public in a, in a greater way um, to to basically to ridicule faith, to say there's no evidence for God. And so a lot of those books and materials have come out, and there's just this rash of that kind of, it's almost like a political campaign. And I think that uh, the arguments that they put forth are flawed, And if but if there's no response to those arguments, uh, then then those arguments, though deeply flawed, will prevail. So I think that what happens, and that's the reason I wrote the book God's Not Dead, one of the reasons is because I think there are clear, uh, clear straightforward arguments or evidences for God, but you have to know what they are. And, of course, you have to live it out. I, I wonder, just based on what we see as modern-day Christianity in a world of, uh, you know, mega churches and, and the approach towards, uh, uh, you know, new ageism, so on and so forth, creeping into what had been um, normative evangelical Christianity, that there are a growing number of believers out there who can't defend their faith because the faith they have is indefensible, meaning that it is weak, it is listless, it's ineffective. Craig, you're right. And I mean, I mean, really, the I mean, Jesus himself came along, and the greatest, seems like some of the greatest criticisms was against religion itself or the practice that uh, thereof and the, and the mis- misunderstanding that lives of people gave in terms of what how they represented God. But, you know, again, I have five children. If my children do bad things, that doesn't mean I don't exist. And so I think it's really beside the point, the question of does God exist? Is there evidence for him? Uh, I believe there's clear clear-cut evidence, not only scientifically, philosophically, and then ultimately, historically, in the resurrection of Christ. And though lives of certain people are, who profess to be believers uh, maybe discredits that or points away from that, I think that we have to say those are, philosophically, those are called ad hominem arguments, meaning it's argument against the man. But um, really, when you, when you start looking at that and when you start putting forth the evidence for God, uh, in fact, the Newsboys, a Christian group uh, that many of them have been a part of our church out here, they have a song uh, that they uh, put forth called "God's Not Dead." And in the last 18 months, it was a, you know, a very fast number one hit. And and, and there was it's a it's almost like an anthem for faith, as opposed to maybe John Lennon's "Imagine There's No Heaven," which if there's an anthem for unbelief, that might be the the, the song. But um, then the newsboys, many of them came and said, you know, would you write this book to to give the evidence? Because really, uh, three out of four young people will leave their church youth groups, and when they get to college, three out of four will will pretty much leave their faith behind. It, is so, part of the so challenge here, even as we try to go about giving evidence for God, that the the protagonist ends up having to deal with maybe an even bigger question that's being presented, and not just that God exists or doesn't exist, but that why his existence even matters? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I was actually at a, I work a lot, Craig, on the university campuses, our, our ministry. We're on maybe 700 campuses around the world, and I was out on a, a campus, a University of Buenos Aires, and I, I had a translator with me, and I, I had four atheists there, and they basically posed that to me. They said, well, why does this even matter? Why does the existence of God even matter? Why do we even need to discuss it? And one of them had a guitar, and so through the translator, I, I said, do you write music? And he thought I was changing the subject and said, you know, he, like, okay, let's quit talking about God, let's talk about me. And he said, yes, I, I write music. And I, I said, let me ask you, I said, I said, have you ever written a song? He said, yes, I've written a song. And I said, why did you write it? And he said, I wanted to bless, I wanted to, and say bless, he said, I wanted to help people, I wanted to express my feelings. 
And I said, well, what if you wrote a song and somebody either denied you wrote it or took credit for what you wrote? Would that bother you? And he just instantly said, absolutely, you know, in his own, however he said that. And I said, well, what if you created a planet? <laughs> in other words, God is the creator. Now, we're, so, uh, we're so in tune to our intellectual property rights and to that, but here God is the creator of everything. He has the patent on air. He has the patent on DNA. Because he is the creator, then all of life points to his ownership. And that's what in the, in the Scripture talks about when we stop honoring him as God or giving thanks and our hearts become darkened. So because God is real, he is the ultimate basis of reality. And so to deny that or to ignore that is much like a fish that just says, I just don't want to acknowledge water. I don't want to acknowledge what surrounds me. Uh, and, it's, and it says, in him we live and move and have our being. So everything, it's everything to do with a healthy life, with a normal life, to understand the, the very ground of our being, which is God himself. And the existence of your doubt does not pretend to the notion that, therefore, what you doubt exists certainly does not. We're going to go a little bit deeper on this uh, equation. We're visiting today with uh, Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. We'll take a brief time out. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Rice Brooks with us today. A look at God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. And certainly there's plenty of that these days with the, the knowledge on the increase, as Scripture tells us it would happen. More and more people want evidence. When it comes down to that evidence, let's talk about that. There's often that sense out there, uh, Dr. Brooks, that this is all about blind faith and that somehow we need to check our brains at the door, that there is a disconnect between science and belief. Talk to us a bit about this notion that somehow uh, belief in God necessitates that we completely disconnect our intellect. Uh, Craig, excellent point. In fact, last year I went to the Global Atheist Convention uh, down in Australia to listen firsthand to men like Richard Dawkins and the rest of these uh, folks that are putting this forth. And um, that was really their central contention. Ironically, Craig, uh, on the opening night of the convention, there were four professional comedians. You'd think you'd go all the way to Melbourne to hear, you know, something very scientific and profound or, you know, deeply philosophical to substantiate their lack of faith, and, and it was just insult and mockery. And ironically, there was very little reason present at the global celebration of reason, as they called it. On the other hand, real faith isn't blind, meaning that we have faith based on, number one, that we know God is real from what he's created, I think science is pointing to that. In fact, um, I was in the home of a man named Francis Collins who uh, headed up the Human Genome Project. And, and really, Craig, imagine this. Imagine, imagine somebody listening got a text on their phone, and, and usually what we call it is a pocket text. And, and you had a few disjointed letters or disconnected letters. You'd know it was somebody sat on their phone. If somebody gave you a complete sentence, like if a student, you know, don't tell anybody I cheated on the test, they would know that sentence was not randomly produced. Well, what about a sentence 3.1 billion letters long? That's the ordered information in the human genome. And that's what caused men like Anthony Flew, who used to be the world's most famous atheist, to basically, before he died, to say, I now believe in God because of the information in DNA. And so if you go to the very beginning of the universe, uh, scientists talk about it being fine-tuned meaning that from the very beginning, if you just take what physicists tell us about the Big Bang, 
uh, basically there was such an order and it's almost like you had little knobs like if you had a universe starter kit and gravity and other other of these constants and quantities were so finely tuned that the only response that atheists have is is that well there must be an infinite number of universes See, if you have an infinite number of chances, then you get a universe like ours, which has all of these fantastically uh, calibrated, uh, uh, you know, you know, equations and equations. But that's when you take laws and put them into mathematical statements. They are, they are. It displays and, and shows the in, incredible order in the universe. Stephen Hawking, probably the most celebrated physicist of our time, uh, had a show on the Discovery Channel, and he said the universe could pop into existence on its own out of nothing and it's basically this you know kind of the implication of quantum mechanics which says that in the subatomic world these particles kind of appear and disappear but there's this kind of underlying thing that they say the laws of physics would predict this so what you have Craig is you either have an eternal set of laws that have just been there or an eternal lawgiver which is the better explanation. So, right, what, what about the argument you made mention earlier, you brought up Richard Dawkins' name, uh, and you're, you're kind of heading down the road toward uh, the notion of intelligent design. Now, Richard Dawkins would suggest that, well, wait a minute now, to, to suggest there's design, <coughs> design and complexity about mankind, and therefore, if, if design, then an intelligent designer, that suggests then that the designer, by by course, by nature, must be more complex than what he or it has designed, and, and therefore an absolute impossibility. What about that argument? Well, it, he's really it's really kind of a twist on actually a, uh, from a theologian named William of Ockham uh, in Ockham's Razor, which basically said if you have two explanations, the simpler one should be chosen. But, I mean, that's like saying I go into an art museum and say, well, I'm trying to figure out who made this painting, and I can't, I can't postulate an artist because the artist would be more complex than the painting. You see, so simplicity, the, 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 if you start looking at the complexities, or the complexities, rather, of what it would take for a universe to start itself, the complexities of all the detail from DNA to the fine-tuning to the moral, to, to the morality within humans, to the existence of consciousness. Uh, I mean, think about this. I mean, when Dawkins talks about who designed the designer, well, uh, you're, you're really, that's kind of like a schoolyard. It's like if you go to the moon, Al, Alvin Plantico, a philosopher, said if you go to the moon and found a, you know, somehow this big machinery on the other side and, and somebody said, oh, that couldn't have, you know, that, that just had to happen because, you know, it couldn't have just gotten here on its own or if you're positing somebody brought that here, they would be more complex than that. I mean, it really becomes an absurd argument. So I think the evidence, Craig, the evidence of design, the evidence of morality, the evidence of our own conscious minds and personality, and ultimately reason itself. There is no other explanation for reason than a, than a mind behind the universe. Uh, C.S. Lewis would have said it this way, what's more plausible, that mind brought matter into existence or that inanimate, you know, you know uncaused or, you know, matter brought mind into existence? So the best explanation, I believe, to the objective mind is, is that there was mind first and then matter. Well, we look, for example, at the so-called Big Bang Theory and the notion that out of this huge bang, this huge explosion, came such an incredible, incredible degree of chaos, and yet we, or, or organization, rather, and yet 
since then, we've never been able to repeat that. Every time I've seen a bomb go off, we know its capability of destruction. We've never seen anybody blow up a building, for example, and wind up with a steamship. <laughs> you know, the, the notion no, that true. somehow out, out of destruction comes order simply doesn't make any sense. And yet that's been one of the arguments that they've hung frivolously to for so many decades. If you've tuned in a bit late, we're visiting today with Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. We'll come back to more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation in this portion of the program with Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. Right. I, I Craig, I think what you're saying is, is that, you know, first of all, science, uh, science and God, I mean, the, science rose out of a Christian worldview. People don't realize this, that the original scientists, so to speak, were believers. And the reason it rose out of a Christian ethos was because they believed the universe and the world was rationally understandable. And because of that, they understood, like Isaac Newton understood, the mathematical order of the world, and, 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 of, and you start seeing the complexity of things and the harmony of things. I mean, Einstein himself, who was no, uh, he didn't believe in a personal God, but he certainly, uh, he certainly said things that people today that are trying to portray him as an ultimate skeptic don't like to be reminded of. He said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that the universe is comprehensible. And so uh, scientists have talked about that people who are Christians talk about it being like binocular vision, that you t it takes faith and science working together. Uh, science can tell you if you go into a kitchen and you see a boil of you know water on the a pot boiling on the stove, you can measure the heat and when the water boils and the, 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 all of the elements that are making up the pot. But science can't tell you why that pot of tea is boiling or why that kettle is boiling. Well, I'm going to make a cup of tea. Would you like one? As C.S. Lewis would have said. So there's there's the ultimate questions of why we're here. Is Gottfried Leibniz? Uh, mathematician and a believer would ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, I was on a university campus at the University of New Orleans, and I, I, I posed that to the classroom. I said, look, you have either, you, you either, everything you see either created itself or it was started by something besides itself, thinking that would be a simple little choice of every, everything we see, matter, energy, space, time, all of it just started itself or it was started by something besides itself. And a student raised his hand. He said, there's a third choice. I said, well, what is it? He said, maybe we're not here at all. I, in a class kind of laughed, and I said, well, in that case, you wouldn't be here. So be quiet. But no, we're here. And so why is there something rather than nothing? Scientists can't answer that. They can't answer where did life come from? Darwin proposed evolution, but evolution is a theory that tells you what happens after you get life. It can't tell you where the self-replicating mutator uh, or that, that mechanism came from, much less the original organism. Darwin said that in The Origin of Species. We, have no, we at this point have no understanding as to where life came from. Uh, the scientists can't answer why are we moral. You know, people talk about the problem of evil, but what about the problem of good? For every one person that goes in and shoots up a theater or does something in a school, there's millions more that would never do such a thing and know it's wrong and reach out in comfort and concern and compassion. And so why are we moral? What's, what, what is this thing called morality that we know there's a right and a wrong, and Darwinian ethics can't explain that? 
Darwinian ethics can't tell us why Hitler was wrong versus uh, other scientists from other countries. And the ultimate question, uh, Craig, that science can't answer is, who can we trust to fix us? And really, I think for our listeners and, you know, whether it's politics or interest rates, I mean, all the things you cover on this show, everybody's looking for who can I trust, whose advice can I trust? And really, the ultimate evidence of why we can trust in Jesus Christ is because the, the God himself, the creator, became a man in Christ. And he walked on this earth, and then he inexplicably to, the, to those around him uh, gave himself over to, to be killed. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And, and interesting, he rose from the dead in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove, which was Jerusalem. I lived in Jerusalem for several months, been there many times, and nobody doubts there really that Jesus lived. Uh, it's really it comes down to what happened. Nor did he really did he died. The question, the ultimate question, is what happened after three days. And when he came out of that grave in history, resurrected, it verified his identity, and that's why we know we can trust his voice, his words, uh, his 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 wisdom. We can trust that. We can trust that advice, if you will, and say that God hasn't just kind of given us some vague understanding he has reached us in christ and given us the ultimate evidence in the ultimate evidence and i know inside the book god's not dead you refer to nine basic proofs of the 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 evidence of god is the ultimate design here to be a handbook for believers to understand more about their faith as they share it with others in a more vibrant fashion or is this even appropriate for someone who's a seeker that says you know I don't know that God exists or I have severe doubts of his existence and I've been challenged and so I'd like to do some research Greg thank you for that question it's really all of the above I mean I think number one there's a lot of people that know God is real you know he's real but you just can't show it uh, you have a subjective experience of God but if you're asked by a classmate by a co-worker in fact the man who, one of the men who inspired this book was in the Christian music industry. His name is Dean, and uh, he'd been in there for several years, and he said, he said to me, he said, I was actually talked out of my faith by an atheist. And he's driving down the highway, and uh, he just, out of his mouth, he said, God, I just can't believe in you anymore. Here's a Christian music executive in the city I'm in right now, Nashville, and he just finally is so embarrassed because this atheist pretty much said something that he couldn't respond to that he just verbalizes this, hey, God, I don't want to believe in you anymore. And he said, no sooner had he said that, that he hears a voice that said, who do you think you're talking to? Mm. So he literally pulls his car off the side of the road on I-40 here in Nashville to get his heart right, he said, but he still had to get his head right. And see, this is the thing, is that God, we don't have a faith that can't be examined. God doesn't want us to bury our doubts or just swallow and follow or don't think like that. He calls us to love him with all of our minds and hearts. So first of all, if you're a believer, but yet you're struggling with doubts, or I, can't exp I don't think I could explain this to an unbeliever, then yes, I've written this book, God's Not Dead, to give you those proofs. Uh, but if you are a seeker, or even more, if you're a skeptic, uh, you know, Craig, my atheist brother, I, I, I tell the story about my brother, who is my older brother. He was in law school at Southern Methodist University. He had a master's degree in counseling and psychology. And in his third year at the top of his class, he came home to talk me out of the Christian faith. Mm. And he'd been studying the Bible to find the contradictions. And really, in, the, in trying to answer his questions, it dawned. I just looked at him and I said, Ben, it's not what you don't know about God that's keeping you from him. 
It's what you do know. It's like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. It says in Romans, and men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and that's what he was doing. And uh, the night he came home to talk me out of the faith, I actually baptized my older brother. He's an attorney now, Ben Brooks, in Austin, Texas, and, and, a, and a very formidable witness for Christ. But I have found that the skeptic and the, and the atheist, I mean, I'm, I think if we talk to them and answer their questions and listen to their objections, I think this book is going to give any believer uh, the ability to be in that conversation. I've got a 16-year-old, and I tell him all the time, I say, his name is Wyatt. I said, Wyatt, this may be over your head, but it's not out of your reach. And I think that if, if believers, I mean, look, there's fantastic, you know, Robbie Zacharias, Lee Strobel, you can name it, William Lane Craig, Dr. Hugh Ross, on and on. But, you know, we don't just need another expert. We need millions of believers, Craig, that can articulate the evidence for their faith uh, to the world around them. And that's what I hope the book will give every believer the ability to do. And I hope then, too, for those that might even be listening right now that are decidedly in the, the, the curious category, the seeker category, maybe decidedly in the disbeliever category. You know, it has often been said sometimes by atheists that uh, uh, they, um, they've never come to faith in the existence of God or faith in Christ for one or two reasons, either because, well, they never knew a Christian who told them the story or because they did know a Christian and therefore decided not to. Don't let the behavior sometimes of others stand in your way of engaging in your own truth-seeking, your own research. Oftentimes at the end, there ultimately is much too, ev- too much evidence to simply ignore or to maintain disbelief. And good way to get educated and start, whether you're a seeker, curious, disbeliever, or somebody that's just looking to get a better handle on your own faith. Uh, you, you want to trade that weak, listless, ineffective faith for an alive, vibrant, life-changing faith. Uh, this book is a good place to start. God's Not Dead. Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. The book, by the way, newly published by our friends over at Thomas Nelson. You can get it at the usual suspects, Bay Area bookstores, as well as through Amazon.com. And, uh, Dr. Brooks, you've got a website, too, don't you? Yes, we do. We have it's ricebrooks.com. Or you can, if, you're, if there's pastors listing, we have resources. There's actually sermon series of free notes. We'll, in other words, we're... We are wanting pastors and leaders and campus leaders. I've just come from, I'm, I'm currently on a campus tour, and uh, campus leaders are doing series and small group material. You can go to godsnotdead.org or ricebrooks.com. But, yeah, the book technically comes out, Craig, in about a week. I think it's a week from today, but I think you can get it uh, pre-ordered on Amazon, but it'll hit the bookstore shelves in about a week. So Excellent. We'd love, really to, have, love to have you on early to do a bit of a tease here tonight, Doctor, and we'd love to get you back again soon. Thank you so much. There is Dr. Rice Brooks. God's not dead. Evidence for God in an age of uncertainty. And our thanks to Dr. Rice Brooks for being with us. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You have perhaps heard it said, the most segregated hour in America is Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. That's a quote, by the way, by Martin Luther King Jr., and to be sure, it was as true in his day as some might argue it is today. What is it about this business of reconciliation that sometimes we in the church seem to struggle with on the horizontal plane, when particularly so, we have such a loving and phenomenal example of what true reconciliation looks like through the example of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice 
for all of us, that through we, him we might be reconciled unto the Father. We take a look at this topic as we meet a new leader of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Mountain View. He is lead pastor and speaker on the radio broadcast, Inspired to Live, heard weekday mornings at 5 a.m. right here on KFAX. And we welcome not only to the KFAX microphones, but to the San Francisco Bay Area, Pastor Brian Lourdes. Pastor, welcome. Well, it's good to be here, Craig. Thanks for the invitation to sit down and to chat a little bit. This has been kind of a, a ping-pong experience for you, coastally, roots in Philadelphia. You went to Philadelphia Bible uh-huh, College. Uh-huh. Then you made your way out to California for a while and Went to Talbot there. Went to Talbot there. Met my wife there, so it was a good trip. And you pastored one of your first churches there. Well, I was on staff serving in a church, so a couple of churches. Bishop Kenneth Ulmer, I was on staff with him at Faithful Central Bible Church. And then I was on staff at Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena. And then after that, went to Charlotte for a couple of years, where I served as a young adults pastor. And then just felt burdened to plant a multi-ethnic church in the most segregated urban center in the country, which was Memphis, Memphis Tennessee. Tennessee. And I was right. there for about 11 years. And then from there to New York. New York City. And you barely experienced the first snowfall in New York. And God said, Brian, I've got a plan for you. Back out in California. Out of the blue, God completely surprised us. We were enjoying our 900-square-foot apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan (laughs) where we crammed in three boys. And uh, actually, I was doing the numbers. It's cheaper for us to live in Manhattan than the Bay. I'm not surprised. Unbelievable. So, but out of the blue, I mean, we were enjoying New York, and out of the blue, there was just this open door and a nudge on our hearts to come to the Bay and to love on these dear people at Abundant Life. What was it about the calling in particular that that really reached your heart? And I asked that question because, wow, the San Francisco Bay Area, now you're going to hear a native speaking, so I'll sound mildly prejudiced um, on behalf of the Bay Area. One of the most phenomenally diverse culturally rich areas of the entire country. And I think there's two from a spiritual dynamic. There's two distinctions about the Bay Area. Number one, if you want to go to the mission field, you're in it. Uh, Anybody who wants to experience what it's like ministering to any tribe, tongue, culture on the planet, you'll find it very well represented right here. But secondarily, because it's one of the most diverse mission fields, it also has the reputation of being one of the most challenging. 4% per capita, lowest church attendance in the nation, right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Some would say, wow, why do you want to come cast seeds in this thorny, rocky soil when there's so many other rich parts of the country in which to do it? Well, a part of it is, you know, every part of the country has their own thing. So I pastored in the Bible Belt for years. And, you know, on the one hand, one of the blessings of it is you could assume a certain level of biblical and theological IQ. So you could say, hey, you remember the story of Noah, or hey, you remember that story in the Bible, and they would get it. The downside of it is I called it Elder Brotherville, uh, using kind of the imagery from Luke 15, where you have the younger brother prodigal, but the elder brother, who's close to the father geographically, but whose heart is far away from him. So, you know, the Bible Belt has its share of of disadvantages. And in a lot of ways, I'd much rather minister in a secular setting like this one or New York City than the Bible Belt. Because when people come to church, they're not coming out of tradition. 
as much as I'm really seeking and searching for answers. Yeah, you don't find many cultural Christians in a place like New York City or the San Francisco Bay Area. Absolutely. And I think the thing that I'm starting to pick up on is for those who come who are seeking, you know, the Bay tends to attract the best of the best. You know, just the transplants were coming in to work for Google or Apple or all that stuff, which is right where our church is situated. They're coming in, and they're they're used to being at the top of their classes. They're used to having, you know, uh, great scores on standardized tests, so on and so forth. Then they get here, and they're starting to make their money. And I've had conversations with with some of them who aren't Christians yet, but they don't say it this way, but there's just this sense in their soul where they go, is that it? Mm. So I've got the Tesla. Uh, I live in the zip code. I've got the wonderful house, got the prestigious job, and I thought I'd be satisfied. Top of the game in all the yeah. senses in which we, from a materialistic or humanistic standpoint, measure success. Yeah. And yet there's that God-shaped vacuum yes. that still presents itself. Absolutely, which I think is is why Tim Keller has done such a wonderful job in New York City, which, again, is a similar setting. There are some some differences but him just kind of going, you're, you've been looking for meaning in the stuff of this life. You're not going to find it there. Let me point you in the right direction. Do you get a, a, a sense of joy and satisfaction from a pastoral standpoint and being able to lead somebody through the very basics to a level of Christian maturity? And, and I ask that question, Pastor, because you reference the Bible Belt area where a lot of folks grow up in church. They know the basic stories. They can quote Bible passages and scripture. You start here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it's deeper than just, well, in the beginning was the Word. It's, well, let me explain to you what the Bible is why it's valid for today, how it can apply to our lives, and then take them from there. So it's almost as if you're starting in the most minuscule baby steps in that process of introducing somebody to the truth of Christ in through a commitment to the Lord and then eventually through discipleship and spiritual maturity. Is there something about that that Absolutely. attracts you? Absolutely. So yes, but no. And again, I'm hardly an expert on the Bay. So Craig, you, you feel free to push back on me. The thing that I'm sensing in the Bay is, is that, yes, you're dealing with a group of people that Barna now calls nuns, N-O-N-E-S. So these are people um, who have no faith, right? Um, so on, on one hand, yes, I do have to start out with what the writer of Hebrews calls the elementary principles, basics. But on the other hand, my section of the Bay, I feel like I can set the cookies a little bit higher on the shelf, so while there may be a low theological IQ, these are incredibly intelligent people. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, of one uh, gentleman who's at our church now who is a professor at Stanford and who at best would be a nominal Christian. Well, there's just this sense you look at and you go, that person's got an MBA from Harvard and that person's got a PhD and that person. So while I have to talk basics, I think at the same time, I can almost be like Paul on Mars Hill in Acts chapter mm. 17 and almost almost kind of have more of an intellectual, philosophical thing that still gets to the heart. There's also a sense, do you find, in many of the people here in the Bay Area, and specifically in Mountain View in the part of the Bay Area, the heart of Silicon Valley, where you're ministering, that they they want something more out of life, as you yes. suggested. They've, they've achieved success financially and... Um, in their career, and in their family. Now they're looking for something deeper, richer, fuller, and 
they're also le- wanting to leave their mark. I think of the 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 millennials and the Gen Xers yeah. who are passionate about the planet and conservation and wanting to leave the place better in which they found it, perhaps. Yeah. Is that a plus, too? So it's interesting you say that, Craig, because I'm, I'm sitting here going, I, I like to plan my preaching out about six to 12 months in advance, just kind of looking down the road going, man, these particular people, where do I want to lead them? I think what you're describing is the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm. And from what I'm picking up, again, about my section of Silicon Valley, I'm sure if I was in different sections of the Bay, I'd have a different approach. But where I'm at, Ecclesiastes just seems to be spot on, where you've got a guy saying, hey, I've pretty much done it all. You want to talk about women. You want to talk about alcohol. You want to talk about hedonism, intellect. I've had it all. And my conclusion is vanity of vanities. Yes. There's just this real sense of emptiness and a sense of unfulfillment. And so I I think that's going to be a bullseye study for us where we're going. And again, our section of the Bay. And then from there, once having led them to and through that satisfaction, that fulfillment that comes in a personal relationship with Christ Jesus, to then help pivot them to that notion that, okay, here's a way in which you can leave your mark by playing a dynamic role in impacting other lives for the kingdom of God. So now we move from, well, let's save the whales to let's see what we can do to save humankind. Let's see what we can do to toss a a lifeline out to somebody who is hurting, who is confused, who's troubled in their marriage, um, just wandering about and are looking for an anchor. And, of course, we know that anchor to be Jesus. Which, again, from an outsider's perspective, just coming here to the Bay. It's funny, my first day here, Craig, you know, when you move somewhere for the first time, especially if you're married, you and your wife have to make the Target run. And we go to Target Absolutely. and <laughs> we load the cart up about three, $400 worth of stuff. And we're, we're checking out. And again, this is like our first day here. And the guy behind the, the cash register is about 17, 18 years old. And he scans a few items and he goes, would you like a bag? And I'm going, that's strange. It's a weird question. Of course <laughs> I want a bag. <laughs> so I said, of course I want a bag. So he scans a few more items. He goes, you want another bag? And I'm like, this is weird. And finally it hits us that we're being charged for bags here. And the, the, the thing, and I say that to say, the thing that I, I'm feeling about the Bay is just this incredible sense of responsibility to care for the environment, to engage well, to steward well. I think these are some things that are innate in humanity that is, life's deepest satisfactions are not just in receiving, but we also kind of have this shared responsibility to want to give. But we got to put Jesus in the middle of all that, Indeed. or it's just, just general philanthropy. So how do we wrestle with that? And, and really the vision of our church is saying we're not going to be a cruise ship. So on a cruise ship, it's all about you, you know, so you can, you know, get the extra steak, you can complain about the, you know, accommodations, the bedding, the food. I said, we want to be a battleship. And on a battleship, you don't complain about the sleeping arrangements, uh, because it's, it's not about you. There's a, what's guiding everything is a mission. And so we're saying, what's our mission at the church? Well, we want to produce reproducing followers of Jesus Christ. So we don't want to just – we want to take people from being consumers and put them on a continuum and a trajectory to being contributors. 
Pastor Brian Lord is with us today in studio, lead pastor at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Mountain View. His broadcast, Inspired to Live, heard weekday mornings at 5 a.m. right here on KFAX. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation right after this. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 